0: Sometimes it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you do know that ain't so. Not Mark Twain. I think that's actually from the movie The Big Short, but it is still very true. The publishing industry is packed with bad advice that spreads from author to author like a virus. And this bad advice wastes your time, your money, And your energy. Think of this episode like a big bottle of hand sanitizer to help keep your publishing career from getting sick. I'm Thomas Humpstadt Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books and change the world with writing worth talking about. It is the show for writers who don't want to be bamboozled by publishing superstitions, which is exactly what we're going to talk about in this episode. Superstitions come when we misplace cause in effect. We walk under a ladder on our way to work, and then we get fired. So it must have been walking under the ladder that caused us to get fired. Walking under the ladder must be unlucky. The problem with superstitions is that once we come up with an answer to the question, we tend to stop looking for the answer. So instead of asking if our job performance caused us to get fired, we content ourselves with the answer that it must have been because we were unlucky this kind of thinking is an ancient fallacy called post hoc ergo propter hoc which is translated from the latin after this therefore because of this or put in modern vernacular correlation does not equal causation just because somebody did something and then went on to become a best-selling author doesn't mean that that thing they did had anything to do with them becoming a best-selling author just because best-selling authors eat wheaties Doesn't mean you eating Wheaties will make you a best-selling author. In publishing, there are a lot of superstitions like this that spread from person to person. Now, sometimes superstitions can be useful. There was an ancient belief that there must be as much land above the equator as below the equator. So medieval maps had Antarctica on them, despite the fact that no one had ever seen Antarctica. Turns out that belief was wrong, but Antarctica Is real. We don't need a balance of land above and below the equator, but there is a continent below the equator. Myths, on the other hand, often start with a grain of truth, or maybe they were true at a time, but in retelling, the truth gets confused with error. The story becomes more and more sensationalized. Or another form of myths is they're a custom that once had a reason behind the custom, and the reason has now been forgotten. Like the practice of cutting down a tree and putting it in your home before Christmas. Most people do it, but they don't know why. They do it. And stick around to the end of the episode if you want are curious about the origin of the custom of putting up Christmas trees. Or why do we say, bless you, after somebody sneezes? Turns out it was an order by the Pope back during the days of the plague. So speaking of things that we still do, despite not remembering why, that leads us into our first myth that it is time to debunk, and that is that the best day to launch your book is on Tuesday. This is perhaps the strangest superstition in this list, and it is one that publishers still follow in 2020. If you were traditionally published, chances are your book was published on Tuesday. And what you may not realize is that your publisher publishes all of the books that they put out on Tuesday. Even record companies release new CDs and DVDs on Tuesday. So Tuesdays are this incredibly crowded day where if you are launching your book on Tuesday, you're competing with not only all the other books that are launching that whole week, they're all launching on Tuesday, but also with all of the DVDs and CDs that are releasing. Why? I did a lot of research trying to figure out what the original reason was behind the superstition. I found one person on Quora claiming that it was because the New York Times starts their week for their bestseller list on Tuesday. But I couldn't confirm this anywhere. In fact, I found on Vox uh, that the New York list starts on Monday. And so it's a week going from Monday through Sunday, which is what all the other lists do. All of the bestseller lists either start on Monday or on Sunday. So starting on Tuesday doesn't make sense from a bestseller list perspective. In fact, it would make sense to launch on Monday if that's when the week starts. You have one more day's worth of sales to help you hit the bestseller list. I suspect there may have been a reason at one time, but that reason is long gone. Kind of like the superstition that spilling salt is bad luck. Back when people were paid in salt, aka a salary, spilling salt was like having a $100 bill blow away in the wind. This superstition persists today despite the fact that salt is now so cheap We dump it on the ground to keep the roads and sidewalks from icing over. So the reality is is that Amazon has done a lot to undermine whatever the rationale used to be to support this practice. Uh, They tend to list a book as, quote, for sale, unquote, as soon as they get it in stock. They don't want to pay money for space in a warehouse for a book that's not supposed to launch until some later date. Unless your name is J.K. Rowling, (laughs) they'll make an exception. Uh, Some brick-and-mortar bookstores do this as well. Uh, Just-in-time manufacturing means that there's no, quote, back room, unquote, to store products in. You may be surprised that a lot of the bookstores don't really have a back room anymore. Walmart, for instance, has the goal of taking things straight from the truck and putting it right to the shelf, truck to shelf. And so there's very little back room in a Walmart. They don't want boxes and boxes of stuff they can't sell. They'd rather use that square footage in their store for shelves, not for not shelves. (laughs) So the reality is is it's really hard to have your books uh, come in on Tuesday. And typically, whenever the bookseller gets the book, that's when they list the book as being for sale. So what do you do instead? Since the whole publishing industry tries to put their books out on Tuesday... My advice for you is to pick any other day of the week to launch your book. You'll have far less competition, and you will be more likely to rank as an Amazon bestseller or a number one new release if you launch on a different day. If everyone around you is zigging, have the courage to zag. And you'll find that even on an unconventional day, because it's less popular, it's easier to rank. Because while the newspaper bestseller lists update themselves once a week, Amazon's bestseller list updates itself once an hour. And so if you're going for an Amazon bestseller strategy, it might make sense to launch on a Sunday or, or on a Friday. And if you're going for a USA Today bestseller list strategy, launch on a Monday. (laughs) That's the best day to launch if you're trying to hit a bestseller list. The second myth I'd like to debunk is that publishers don't do marketing. This is an incredibly common myth. And like many myths, it does have a grain of truth that the pearl of the myth has built around. So the myth is that publishers won't lift a finger on marketing. And while this is true for small publishers, and so if you're only publishers interested in your book or small publishers, it is true for you. And why I don't recommend that anyone go with a small publisher. Publishers do spend money on marketing. They spend millions of dollars on marketing. So here is the reality. The reality is that publishers spend a lot of money on marketing for their top authors or for the authors they expect to become their top authors. Sometimes six and even seven digits of marketing budget are spent on the very top books by the very top publishers. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars and sometimes millions of dollars. The thing is they don't spend a penny on their bottom authors. So there's a a quote that is used a lot in business schools from the Bible. It's from Jesus who said, to him who has more will be given, and to him who does not have what he thinks he has will be taken away. And this is very true in publishing. There is a winner-gets-all strategy. And having worked in the publishing industry myself, I have seen the numbers. I've seen why this is. <laughs> because you spend $100 on your very top book, you get $200 back. You spend $100 on one of your average books, you might get back, or maybe $101 back. It makes much more sense to spend all of your money on your very most popular books. The money that returns the fastest is the money spent on the top books. So what do you do instead? (laughs) What uh, What should you do now that you understand the truth of this myth? Well, don't sign with a publisher who offers you a small advance. A small advance indicates they don't believe your book will sell well. And if they don't think it's going to sell well, they're not going to spend money on marketing. Another clue, if your publisher believes in your book, is whether or not they promise to produce the audiobook in the contract. If they are confident about your book being a hit and they're committed to making it a hit, they're going to commit to producing an audiobook. In fact, they'll demand to have exclusive rights to make the audiobook because they know that audiobook is going to be a moneymaker. Whereas if they're not sure, They're a little hesitant about your book. They often won't promise to make your book an audiobook in the contract or even be willing for you to make the audiobook. That's an indication that they have no money to spend. And so uh, it's better to publish your book independently and have your own access to the marketing data so that you can market your book effectively than to go with a publisher who isn't invested in your book and isn't going to invest in marketing your book. This is really important. If your publisher is not committed to marketing your book, and that's how it is with a lot of books, don't sign with that publisher because they keep the data, the sales data for themselves. And actually, publishers keeping sales data is why so many of the myths we're going to get into persist because authors have no idea what works and what doesn't because they can't see they numbers. They don't know if June 25th's sales were better or worse than June 24th. And without knowing that, they don't know if the promotion they did on June 25th did anything to move the numbers. Also, just because your publisher is spending a lot of money on your marketing doesn't mean you're not still expected to participate. Even President Obama, whose publisher spent millions of dollars promoting his book, still had to go on a media tour to promote his book. It is the expectation. So, If Obama is not exempted, you are not exempted. So just because your publisher will be spending money on marketing, they still want you to help. Myth number three is that book signings introduce authors to new readers. And this myth of the ones we're going through is the one that is on the shakiest footing. Word is starting to get out that book signings don't work, which isn't exactly true. (laughs) Book signings can work, but they don't work for authors who are trying to get new readers. Uh, the reason your publisher is likely wanting to send you across the state, or God forbid, across the country, to do a book signing is to build the publisher's relationship with the bookstore owner, not to help you sell more books. <laughs> so the reality is, is that the marketing playbook for famous authors trying to keep their fans happy is very different from the playbook for an unknown author trying to get fans in the first place. Just because a famous author has a line out the door waiting to get signatures on her book doesn't mean you will have the same experience. You have to already be famous for a book signing to work, and even then, it doesn't help you sell new books. It just builds your relationship with your most passionate readers. It is an engagement strategy. It is not an attraction strategy, to go back to Marketing 101. Walking up to a stranger in a bookstore who is the author of a book you've never heard of is super awkward, especially if the author is not a born salesman. And even then, even when the, the author is super outgoing and invites people to the table and starts up a conversation, the sales still don't justify the time and gas and energy and heartbreak invested on in on the promotion. Uh, once you write your second New York Times bestselling book, then you're ready to open up the Celebrity Playbook and start doing things like book signings to engage the fans you already have. So what do you do instead? If book signing doesn't help introduce authors to new readers, what does? Speaking! If you want to have a book table swarmed with people waiting to get your signature, speak to them first from the stage. Once the stage is reopened, this is going to be a really incredible strategy. People are desperate to start hearing speakers again and gathering at conventions again so as soon as it's possible uh, it's going to be a big boom you can get more sales in five minutes after a speech than you will at five hours sitting in a barnes and noble alone and sad checking facebook on your phone (laughs) it's a really miserable experience to do a book signing and even if you've it's just a miserable experience for almost everyone spend your time booking speaking events and getting better at public speaking instead, and giving a speech is much easier than cold-pitching people walking past a bookstore. So while, you know, you may be intimidated by public speaking, at least it's not doing one-on-one sales to strangers. Oh, that is miserable, (laughs) and it doesn't work. Uh, The fourth myth that I would like to debunk is that posting content to social media will build your platform. Now, to be fair, this used to work a little bit. Back, in, back when the world was young, nonfiction authors could build a name for themselves by posting content to social media. And they would then grow a following by posting funny photos or whatever on Facebook or witty uh, sayings on Twitter. And they would use that platform to get a book contract. Now, what happened was that most of the times, those books by those social media celebrities went on to sell poorly. And the publishers became wary of authors who were only, quote, social media famous, unquote, and not real world famous. Uh, There's a big difference between somebody following you on Twitter and then using TweetDeck or some similar program to filter out so they never have to see your tweets and somebody actually having an actual following of actual human beings. So what is the reality? The reality is that we've had social media for almost two decades now, and people are already following too many celebrities. If they're going to follow you, they need to make room by cutting somebody else they're already following. But they don't do that. And so the social media algorithms filter who sees what. And so now you only see a tiny fraction of what is posted by all of the thousands of pages you've liked and thousands of people you follow. And that is a lot of noise to break through on a good day, not to mention whether or not the algorithm is favoring you or not. And speaking of the algorithm, social networks are now inserting themselves in between celebrities and fans. If you want to talk to your fans on Facebook, you now have to pay to do it. And the main reason someone would follow someone new is if they encountered that person in some other form of media. People are not looking for strangers to follow on social media. So like book signings, social media is a tool for connecting with the fans you already have, keeping your millions of fans happy Social media is good for that. It's not great for turning strangers into fans. And I think that this is a really important principle that you've got to understand. If you have a few hundred followers on social media or a few thousand followers on social media, being more active on social media is not going to get you thousands and thousands of new followers you've got to already be famous you'd be better off auditioning for american idol or america's got talent or britain's got talent or wherever you live in the world and get actually famous and get on tv and then you'll get the following on social media you got to put the cart in the horse in the right order and in this case being famous is the horse and having a social media following is the cart so what do you do instead well, hopefully you're relieved. I've now given you permission to ignore social media. So if you're a novelist, get off the social media hamster wheel altogether and spend that time writing more books. The authors who write more books sell more books. It's just that simple. If you just keep your head down and you just keep writing and don't bother with social media, you're going to sell more copies. If you write nonfiction, create more substantive pieces of content like blog posts, podcast episodes, podcast guest interviews, or video, right? Don't be putting out these pithy short things because those don't help build an audience. But if you write a controversial or provocative blog post, if you create a viral video, if you create a podcast guest interview on somebody's popular podcast, that's going to introduce you to new people. Writing something funny on Twitter, will not. It has to be really funny. And even if it gets a lot of retweets, that doesn't mean that just because somebody retweeted you that they're going to buy your book later on. It's just not the right level of relationship. The fifth myth that persists in the publishing industry is that branding assets must be visually matched to the author for the author to have a good brand. In this myth, unlike the others, actually has a group of people who are advocating for it, and it's specifically the graphic designers who make money creating brands for authors. (laughs) It comes from a misunderstanding of what a brand is. The reality is, is that a brand is your reputation. And the other reality is that you are not a corporation like Nike or Apple. You have a different set of tools to work with. And it takes millions of dollars of brand advertising to make somebody feel something about a logo emotionally. And you don't have that kind of money. (laughs) And you don't want to spend that kind of money because you have something better. What is that better thing? The fact that you are already a human being. And human beings already feel something about other human beings. Your logo is your face. Tom Cruise doesn't have a logo. He has his face. Stephen King doesn't have a logo either. Humans are much better connected to other humans than they are to faceless institutions like brands. So don't try to be like the brand. The brand is trying to be like you. Don't try to copy that brand. You don't need to spend millions of dollars to make someone feel something about you. So what do you do instead? Notice what film companies do When they put out a movie, they adapt the logo of the company to match the movie rather than trying to make the movie match the corporate logo. I have in the show notes of this episode the DreamWorks logo at the beginning of the movie Shrek, and the S in DreamWorks has little Shrek ears on it, as does the S in SKG underneath the logo. That's what you should be doing. All of the branding needs to be around the reader experience, rather than about who you are as an author. And if you hire a designer to, quote, create you a brand, unquote, they're asking the wrong questions. And when you ask the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong answers. It's more important to have those visual assets of a book match the story, rather than some abstract brand guidelines for the author. You want to use your design vocabulary of your book's cover to tie it in with the other books of your series and the other books of your genre. It's not about you. (laughs) So you shouldn't be trying to create a visual brand around you, you want to be creating a visual brand around your story. The exception of this potentially is if you're writing nonfiction and your face is your brand. So at least in America, it's very common for nonfiction books to have the face of the author on the cover. But even so, it only works when it works. And don't just put your face on the cover of your book just to put your face on the cover of your book. Having a consistent brand can actually hurt you if it causes you to be out of sync with the other books in your genre or the other books of your series. Each book's branding needs to work for that book and it needs to match the other books in the series and the genre more than it needs to match you, whatever your brand is. It's very easy to put your photo on the back of a book. (laughs) So have the Shrek logo be the Shrek logo and adapt to fit it rather than the other way around. A lot of these myths uh, I'm noticing are carts and horses getting reversed. (laughs) That's where the, the cart comes from, which goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. Cause and effect. What is causing what? The next myth I would like to debunk is that author websites don't matter anymore. And what's fascinating about this myth is that it has evolved. So when we first started this podcast, the version of this myth was that all you needed was a good Facebook author page, which was free. And you didn't need to spend money on a website because everything you would do on the website you could do for free on Facebook. Well, no one believes that myth anymore. Everyone realized what a trap it was to build your platform on Facebook because you end up just being a sharecropper on land that Facebook owns. And they can take that, what you thought was free rent, and suddenly start charging you for it, and there's nothing that you can do. But the myth has morphed. So now instead of, oh, you don't need a website, you, do, you can just use Facebook, it's now, you don't need a website, you just need a strong amazon presence and it is wrong today for all of the same reasons it was wrong yesteryear the reality is is that you cannot share crop your way to success you need to have some part of the internet that you own yourself otherwise you can be easily canceled by corporations who won't even talk to you on the phone and don't even know who you are Your website is where you build your email list. It's where you communicate your message directly to your readers without filtering or algorithmic censorship. And it's where readers find you after hearing about you offline. It's what you put on your business card. It's what you put in your bookmarks. They see your website, they go there, and you control the experience that the reader has. So what do you do? You make sure the reader has a good experience. (laughs) So uh, build your own website with WordPress.org and build it to thrill the reader. And I have a whole episode on this, episode 245, How to Build an Author Website in a Day. And I also have a free course on this that you can find at authormedia.com. We break it down, how to build a website step-by-step, and we make it very easy. Uh, Myth number seven is that book awards boost book sales. A lot of authors think that if they can only win some awards, their sales will go up. The reality is that award committees and readers tend to look for very different things. Award committee members tend to be jaded, tired, and skeptical industry insiders who read more for work than they do for pleasure. And they are desperate for something different, something strange, something fresh. Readers, on the other hand, are eager, excited, and hungry for the familiar. (laughs) They are scared by the different, and the kind of book that will likely do well in award competitions will likely do poorly in the market. If you don't believe me, go look up your favorite award and then compare it to the bestseller list in your genre. See if you can find more than one book that is in both. Typically, in any given time, there's one masterpiece that even the award committees can't say no to. But usually, the books that they're turning down are books that readers are turning up. And they're saying, yes, please give me more of that and vice versa. Also, many word contests are money grabs by opportunistic financial predators. And even the reputable award competitions require you or your publisher to pay to enter. <laughs> They're all pay to win, uh, with the exception of the Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize, you can't pay to enter, and it's a surprise when you win the Nobel Prize. And if you have won the Nobel Prize for Literature that is an award that actually helps. (laughs) But it helps not because it's famous for its literature category, but it helps because it's famous for its other categories. The reality is that other than the Nobel Prize and the Pulitzer Prize, which are famous outside of publishing and just happen to have a literature category, most readers don't know about most awards most of the time. And even when they do know about the award, they don't care about it. They much more care about the review of their friend on Goodreads and what their friend had to say about your book than what, the strangers in the award committee had to say about your book. So what do you do? I recommend that you write for your readers and the readers of your genre, not for award committees. If you win awards, that's great, but don't make that your goal. And don't stress if you don't win awards. You're here to thrill your readers. They're the ones you're here for, not award committees. And if you want to win some awards to feel better about yourself or your writing, go ahead and pay the money to submit. But don't put much stock in it because your readers don't. (laughs) And I give you full permission to completely ignore awards because that's what your readers are already doing. Myth number eight is that blog tours sell more books. Blog tours are easy, and there are a lot of companies that will host one for you. You give them a few hundred dollars, and they will guarantee that your book appears on a few dozen blogs. So why not? right? Why not spend that money? The reality is that the kind of blogs that sign up for blog tours are not the kinds of blogs with good traffic. One popular blog will get more visitors than 1,000 blog tour blogs. So what should you do instead? Use Alexa site info, and I have a link in the show notes, to this website, which is run by Amazon. It's Alexa. It's one of the oldest institutions on the internet, and it will tell you the ranking of the top 10 million websites. So you can find out if a blog is popular or not. And once you've identified a popular blog uh, pitch, a guest article for that popular blog, just one guest article on a popular blog is worth more than dozens of blog tours. And it's also much cheaper. I would also encourage you to pursue podcasts. Being a guest on a podcast is better than being a guest on a blog, for no other fact than that there are far fewer podcasts out there, and so the average podcast is likely to reach more people than the average blog. It also reaches them in a deeper, more powerful way, because while people skim blog posts, they tend to listen to podcasts start to finish. Here you are 30 minutes in to the Novel Marketing Podcast and you're still listening, right? This is far more time than you would spend reading a blog post. Some people say that blog tours help build your brand, but having a blog feature you that no one reads is like giving a speech in a room that is empty. (laughs) It's not gonna help you if there's no one experiencing it or just a handful of people experiencing it. Myth number nine is that book trailers boost book sales. Movie trailers sell movie tickets, so you would think that they would do the same for books. But they don't, at least not in a profitable way. The reality is, is that book trailers are just too different from books. They are video and short, while books are text and long. On the continuum of content on the internet, they're almost on completely different edges. And just because somebody likes your book trailer doesn't mean they're going to read your book especially since most video trailers are just boring slideshows over some stock music and some lines from the book. They're not convincing. The one exception, the one good book trailer, is the book trailer for Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. And I'll have an example of it in the show notes. And it's a cinematic book trailer. They had actual actors and actual computer graphics with a budget that I would anticipate is in excess of $10,000, maybe quite a bit more, depending on what kind of company they had produce this book trailer incredibly risky and while this worked this one time it's not going to likely work for you because Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters is based off of the public domain book Sense and Sensibility that had a movie made from it so it's connecting with a familiarity that people already have with the content it's very unlikely you're going to be able to reproduce that kind of success so what should you do instead I would encourage you to write short stories and to give them away for free. <laughs> it's a much smaller step to go from reading a short story by an author to then reading a full-length book by that same author. Somebody liked your short story, they're going to like your full book. And short stories also help you get better at your craft faster. One of the big reasons a lot of novelists fail is because they skipped the short story step. They jump straight into writing a novel and they think their novel is better than it is. And if you don't know how to write a short story, how can you write a full length novel? (laughs) Until you're faithful in the little things, how can you be faithful in the big things? So if you're still working on your novel, pause and go and write some short stories. It'll make you a better writer faster. Now one way to get your book made into a really good trailer is to sell your book as a movie right once your book is made into a film the film company will make a trailer for the film that can double as a trailer for your book so perhaps buy a book on screenwriting and I have a link to one in the show notes save the cats the most popular book on screenwriting and learn how to write the kind of story that will make for a good movie and perhaps you can take some of the lessons you learned from screenwriting and put them into practice writing your next short story so you can have your cake and eat it too Uh, The sponsor of this episode is the Author Media Mastermind Groups. These are special coaching groups that I host where I will help you and a handful of other authors hit your publishing goals. You can pick my brain and so much more. And two of the three groups are currently sold out. But there is a waiting list. And as I record this, there's no one on the waiting list. If you want to be first on the waiting list, you can find out more at authormedia.com. And the group for published novelists is still open we have a couple of spots open for the group for published novelists everyone else waiting list but this is a good time to join the waiting list our featured patron is shauna letellier author of remarkable advent with breathtaking imagery and captivating storytelling remarkable advent will prepare your heart to celebrate god's greatest gift rediscover the wonder of the first christmas in this Advent devotional. So thank you so much, Shauna, for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. And if you would like to become a patron, I have a link in the show notes. And if you cannot afford to be a patron, but you still want to help out the podcast, you can just leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser or through ratethispodcast.com slash novelmarketing. So speaking of Christmas, (laughs) what is the origin of the Christmas tree? Well, it turns out that the Christmas tree goes back to these mystery plays that were common in the medieval time. And there was a mystery play that was popular for Adam and Eve's Naming Day, which was on December 24th. And in that play, there was a tree that was decorated with apples to represent the forbidden fruit, and wafers to represent the Eucharist and redemption. And these plays were very popular and these paradise trees were later brought into homes. People would put the paradise tree in their home and the apples were replaced by round objects such as shiny red balls. And if you're putting a tree in your house on December 24th, chances are you keep the tree up on December 25th. And so after a while the Christmas tree came to be associated, or the paradise tree, came to be associated with Christmas, which was December 25th, which is fascinating because in the olden days, Christmas didn't start until twenty fifth, the 25th, and then you'd have 12 days of Christmas after December 25th. So having it start a little bit earlier was a little bit unusual, this whole bringing the tree in. And after a while, people started to associate the paradise tree more with Christmas In with Adam and Eve until eventually we forgot all about the Adam and Eve connection. Now, as it was, paradise trees and bringing them in were mostly a German thing until uh, the British monarchy started marrying bunches of Germans in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And and finally, Queen Victoria and her fancy German husband put up a very famous Christmas tree. And if Queen Victoria was doing it in the 1800s, Everyone wanted to do it, and the rest is history. So just like uh, Queen Victoria wearing a white dress at her wedding made us all want to wear white dresses, Queen Victoria putting up a Christmas tree made us all want to put up Christmas trees. So here we are, 200 years later, cutting down trees and putting them up in our house, partly because of Queen Victoria, but also because of Adam and Eve. So it goes back really, really far. (laughs) So I hope that's been interesting. If not, do let me know if you don't want random historical tidbits in your book marketing podcast. I would totally understand that criticism. Uh, You've been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. getting a little off track on the Novel Marketing Podcast. If you want to find the blog version of this episode, links to all of my sources, or get new episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit novelmarketing.com. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.